thank you all for joining us this evening for an insightful um, talk with British art historian, curator, writer and teacher David Elliott. Um, I would firstly like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and offer my sincere respect to Elders past, present and emerging and I'd also like to extend that respect to all other First Nations people who are present here today. David um, tonight will be speaking um, as part of the 21st Biennale Sydney's Biennale Archive Stories. So he'll be sharing his stories um, and his knowledge he's shared over the years from his experiences. Um, as a prolific director of museums and biennales, including the 17th Biennale of Sydney. David's directed museums in Oxford, MoMA 1976 to 1996, Stockholm, the Modern Musette 1996 to 2001, Tokyo, Mori Art Museum, he was a founding director in 2001 to 2006, and Istanbul Museum of Modern Art in 2007. He's currently vice director and senior curator in the Redditory Museum of Contemporary Art and Arts District in Guangzhou sorry for my mispronunciation, and in 2008-10, he was Artistic Director of The Beauty of Distance, Songs of Survival in a Precarious Age, the 17th Biennale of Sydney. In 2011-12, he directed The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, Rebirth and Apocalypse in Contemporary Art, the inaugural International Biennale of Contemporary Art in Kiev. From 2012 to 2014, he was Artistic Director of A Time for Dreams, the fifth International Moscow Biennale of Young Art, and from 2014 to 2016, he was Artistic Director of The Pleasure of Love, the 56th October Salon in Belgrade. And um, currently, his new book, Art and Trousers, Tradition and Modernity in Contemporary Asian Art, will be published by Art Asia Pacific Hong Kong in New York in 2018. So I'm um, really excited for David to share his wealth of experience with us this evening. Um, as you can see, he's um, done some amazing projects and I think we're very fortunate to have him share that with us. So I'd like to um, have you join me in welcoming David um, this evening. Thank you very much indeed, and thank you all for coming. I was um, talking it through uh, with my friends here. They said they would quite like something that I'm going to do in uh, in Sydney as the uh, as the kind of basis of what I'm going to say tonight, and and it will be. But I I, I think uh, I mean we're starting a little late, for which I apologise, but. Um, I will try and uh, pass through the Sydney episode a little quicker than I might, and I will do in Sydney. But you'll be able to see how important it was for me in this stories, ghosts, necessities. And this is really my line on it. Um, what I think is happening um, with, uh, with making exhibitions. Some people call it curators. Well, Curators is okay. It wasn't a word used much in relationship to people working with contemporary or modern art exhibitions. You were an, ex you, you were an exhibition maker back in the 70s. And um, curators only became a big deal, a kind of big social and even slightly academic deal in the 90s um, when it became... I mean, everything got curated from, a, from an exhibition to a cheese board. Uh, 
so let's. I'd like to share with you really where I'm coming from and how I started. So I'd like to go right back to the beginning. When I was an undergraduate in the northeast of England, Durham University. And it was a time, being a child of the 60s, uh, 68, uh, the Vietnam War, the protests against all of that. I mean, but just generally a feeling that uh, uh, one generation was set to replace another. I, I had a few objections to some of my contemporaries' views. Uh, I could not really honestly believe that an alliance of workers, peasants, and students would make anything better in this world. And for that reason, I really didn't feel too comfortable about, about fighting in Grosvenor Square in front of the American embassy, um, that obviously the war in Vietnam was wrong, but would this change anything? So my direction went a different way, and, and I, I was a history uh, undergraduate, and I started to think about art. I don't quite know why, but maybe it had something to do that I was um, brought up in Leicester, which is a, well, it's a pretty middle-range town in the center of Midlands of, uh, Midlands of England. But it had something very special in its museum, and that was... Um, a big collection of German art, German expressionist art in particular, so German art from the uh, early modern German art. And I'd seen this when I was a kid because my dentist was just around the corner and my mother sort of gave me a, a trip to the museum, I think as a palliative to having to go to the dentist. And I saw these paintings and, and objects and they just was struck me as being so much more exciting than anything around me and that I'd noticed in British art. Anyway, so in 1970, I made an exhibition called Germany and Ferment, German Art and Society, 1900 to 1935. And to get back to the, being a child of the 60s, this was actually looking at how and why art was powerful. How art could have such intrinsic qualities that say someone like A. Hitler and his friends may want to destroy it, burn it, remove it from the face of this earth. And so these examples, which were in the exhibition that I showed in three cities in Britain at that time, and I certainly wasn't a curator, didn't speak German, um, I was driven to do it, I don't really know why. Apocalyptic vision, 1912, two years before the Second World, First World War. Anyway, these things, how they all fitted together. And, and it, it, it seemed to me that that time, uh, immediately before the First World War and then the, what evolved after it, this incredible time of ferment in society and politics in, in, in Germany, uh, was both an example and a warning. Now, one other thing happened, and, and this is an exhibition 1972, which happened in Hayward Gallery. I had nothing to do with it whatsoever, but I went with my mum uh, to London, and it was called Art in Revolution. This is the first of a whole range of exhibitions of the same title that uh, the Soviet, then Soviet government, organized and promoted across the world. But of course, it wasn't just done by the Soviet government. They didn't drop it on, 
on them. There, there were curators, uh, the British curators did a very good job. But unfortunately, the three days before the opening, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the rooms were closed off because the Russian Minister of uh, Culture at that time said, oh, we weren't consulted on all of this. But nonetheless, at my tender age of however it was, 21, I didn't know any of that. It inspired me and fired me up. And I just thought, wow, art in revolution. What does that mean? So from 1976 to 1996, I worked as director of the Museum of Modern Art, Oxford. I was 27 when I got the job. I realized that I really didn't know very much about either modern or contemporary art. And if I had to make decisions about what to do and what not to do, I had to get an education. Of course, I had an education, but it was actually extending that, extending that more in the contemporary field of course, in the British, but also uh, at this time when we talked about modern art, it was a, you know, Western white boys club. So it wasn't that difficult. You know, Western Europe, North America, that was it. That was modern art. And, and the history was the same. It went, well. So I started working on that, learning more about it, showing some of it. But also, it did seem to me to be somewhat ridiculous that, uh, that these were other parts of the world that no one was making anything or seemed to have been making anything that was worth looking at. And that idea I began to challenge um, by looking at other modernities, initially that in India in 1982, um, where, of course, Modernity to them was inflicted on them through the colonial occupation of India. Um, and, and then their reaction to it after, after their independence at the end of the 40s. Very, very good artists. Still have never been shown much uh, in Britain um, other than in Oxford in those, in those years. And it's not just one relationship, not a quick sort of one-night stand, but a big show followed by individual shows of artists. And then that went out from, from, uh, in, in terms of Asia uh, to Japan and then finally to China. Uh, in the years before, June 4th, 1989, everything about to move, then all relations cut. And it wasn't until 93 that we got the road moving. So, but the first story I was telling you about uh, the uh, German art and society, the Russian art and society. I mean, that for me didn't reach closure, but it reached the next point in 1995 in uh, the Hayward Gallery in London and traveled to Barcelona and, and Berlin. This exhibition called Art and Power, uh, Europe Under the Dictators. And so I was responsible in that for working on the so Soviet and uh, German painting and sculpture. I mean, others were working on architecture and on the other countries, which were Italy and Spain. So these are long-term engagements. And I think that's one of the first thing about, about curatorship or making exhibitions, is that one thing leads to another. And um, that's something that you control. But many other things you don't control because you don't know until you've seen something, whether it's going to strike you, whether you're going to be interested in it.
So let's move to another country, to, uh, to Stockholm, 1998, uh, the inaugural exhibition of the new museum in, uh, for Moderna Museum, National Museum of, of Modern Art. And there's this question of what you do in Sweden. I mean, I hadn't lived in Sweden before, and what did I know about Sweden? And decided, uh, after some discussion, to, to make the first exhibition called Wounds, between democracy and redemption in contemporary art. Democracy, of course, the Swedish model, everyone talks about it, as a great model for other parts of the world. It's also a slightly conflictual model because so many people and things have rights. I mean, men have rights, women have rights, children have rights, dogs have rights. You know, all these rights sort of coagulate together into rather uneasy relationships sometimes. So I wanted to talk about social and political organization, but also wanted to talk about the other thing that people don't talk about. I mean, your, your, your inner life, if you like your spiritual life, if you think you have a spirit. But anyway, this inner life. And that really, the concept of redemption, Sweden nominally being a Lutherist uh, country, that maybe art could be a redemption. Anyway, they said, David, in Sweden we don't have a word for redemption. The, the, the language got sterilized in the 60s and uh, lots of things were changed. Of course they had a word for redemption. They'd forgotten it. And there, it's a matter of looking for the ghosts. When you move into any town, um, and whether it's working on a big exhibition or a BNR there, you're looking for, you, know, you, you are a stranger in that place. But you, maybe there's some things you see more clearly than others. And you have to learn about that place. And, and the ghosts that I could see that were in, in uh, Stockholm, uh, firstly with the idea of, um, of, uh, of wounds, St. Thomas, and the story of St. Thomas by putting his hand into the side of Christ did what he thought he knew about the world and his whole view of the world get completely turned on their head. So by, by experience, not by knowledge. And that was a kind of good analogy for, uh, for art itself. It won't tell you what you should think. It won't tell you what you should feel. It's only by experiencing it will you know what it is. And to open a new museum building, that's not a bad model, even if you have to wheel out St. Thomas to do it. Martin Luther, leader of the Reformation, lots of guilt and pain and uh, still around in the, in the Swedish psyche, certainly. And Sigmund Freud, who told us that maybe art is a, is a healing of wounds, that art actually comes out of these traumas, the deep traumas that we have, and it helps us to, to somehow heal over the scabs. And then lastly, Ingmar Bergman, who was, then wasn't a ghost, uh, but uh, still very much alive. But the, the story of his uh, uh, films and the, the torment in the films, yet how he combined torment with comedy. So on top of that, there were some necessities. And uh, I think exhibitions need to have 
very clear objectives. So the first one was to examine different ideas of what is meant by modern and what is meant by contemporary. Now, this, is, this at that time was a big subject because the two words were absolutely mixed up. And modern was always had this rather, you know, oh, we're better, we're modern. And particularly when it's directed from the West to the rest of the world, or from one class of people to another class of people, we're modern, we must be better. Whereas contemporary, neither one thing nor the other. It's contemporary, it's made now, art that is made now. And really, from around this time, the experience in Oxford and around this time, uh, was it started to examine, then if everything is contemporary, like things made here in Sweden, things made in Australia, things made by First Peoples, things made in Africa, it's all contemporary, how do you choose what you show then? Well, it's purely on the grounds that they, uh, they're better, they're good, they stick in your mind. You think they're really good and you want to share them with other people. So, we say the quality of the work. What else is there after all? But there were bigger stories going on. The, the collection of the museum had existed for a long time and they're rightly very proud of it, but there were some huge gaps in it. So there's a possibility of showcasing but also critiquing those gaps by making key loans in the exhibition looking, planning for, forward for the future, and also suggesting ways of looking and thinking about art that were new, challenging, and constructive. I mean, I think this is a role of a museum that has to do that. It's a, a dynamic relation, an interactive relationship with audience. And of course, as there was a new building, and this is always important in any exhibition anywhere, to probe the strengths and weaknesses of the new building and its surroundings. Buildings have ghosts. They have characteristics. If you don't take them into account with the art you show in them, if it, even if it's good art, you may well belittle it. You need to get the building and the art working together. So, to be very quick now, 173 works by over 70 artists. And, and going back to the whole idea of the role of the artist now, the position of the artist, uh, it seemed we need to go back to the European Enlightenment because this was the time that the whole idea of rights, of human freedoms was developed, okay, very quite primitively and in a very limited way, but since the end of the 18th century, they've been leeching out to different genders, to different uh, groups of people, as they too were, uh, came to be considered worthy of having human rights. But when it started, it was just people of property. But this work by the Chapman brothers, uh, the uh, disasters of war based on, on Goya, seemed perfect way to start. Because it was taking these images from the uh, War of Liberation of Spain, the terrible atrocities, and turning them into not a video game, it could have been a video game, but in fact, a, you know, a cheap, small children's toys. And then putting them with other images of the same time. Uh, this by Theodor Jericho, which was in the, from, borrowed from the National Museum of Stockholm, the decapitated, decapitated heads, a study for the uh, raft of the Medusa, 
which Jericho painted in 1819. <coughs> Excuse me. And a painting about his outrage at the slave trade, the French slave trade, and also the corruption of the Bourbon government, the new royalist government that had come to rule France after Napoleon. So it was a creed occur. And the idea that the artist was a person of free, free agency with a conscience, and that their conscience was an important part, an important driver of their work, it really occurred at this time. I mean, not to say before then, before the Enlightenment, artists didn't feel, they weren't humane, they empathized. Of course they did. But actually here they take on a social and political role as public oracles. And you all know the death of Marat. That was another uh, painting by, by David, which became an icon of the French Revolution. But this is by Edvard Munch. And it's his version of the death of Marat. But in it, he, he turns the idea on his head. He is Mara. He's lying on his bed, not in the bath. That's his lover in front of him. And they've had a god-awful row. And as a result, he has shot himself in the hand, not in the foot, in the hand. And he's painted that. He made several paintings of it. And um, it's a kind of neopathetic, patheticizing this whole idea of the heroic political figure and making it a kind of neurotic element so that the ego, if you like, the positive ego of the artist is here made into a neurotic presence. And then lastly, a work in the present day, Richard Hamilton, The State, a work about power and about Northern Ireland. This is a, a British soldier walking down the street in Northern Ireland at that time. But there are a number of contemporary artists who picked up images and ideas from the French Revolution. This is Ian Hamilton Finlay, and he's made these four guillotine blades. And on them is written in red, engraved in red, text by Poussin, Robespierre, Diderot, and Hamilton Finlay himself about piety, revolution, virtue. Other artists look at uh, history in a more uh, laconic way. Uh, Rodney Graham, this vex vexation island, it's a looped video in which a man who's uh, left uh, stranded on an island uh, tries to get up, uh, looks for the horizon for a ship, sees it, waves, and is hit on the head by a coconut, passes out, and then the same sequence happens time and time and time again. But it's, it's set in this sort of historical, piratical framework. Andy Warhol's uh, car crashes and uh, Francis Bacon's portraits. Wounds of very different kinds. And then the wounds of the post-war generation in Germany, Gerhard Richter's uh, images of photographs, paintings of faded photographs, including his uncle Rudi, who was a member of the Wehrmacht, and many others. This is Dick Bengtsson, a uh, Swedish artist who was uh, very much concerned with the kind of Nazi heritage within Sweden itself. I mean, nominally it was neutral. But here he's showing these uh, Aryan young youths uh, hiking through the Alpine landscape with on their backpacks they have modernist paintings. Uh, you can see a Kandinsky, a Mondrian, and a, and a Rothko there. And this wouldn't at all have been allowed under the, under the Third Reich. 
Baselitz, uh, an artist who came out of the Eastern Germany, uh, his Heldenbilder, his hero paintings. And these hero paintings were based on the socialist realist heroes that he'd grown up with in the GDR and via the Russian connection, because they were part of the Soviet bloc at this time. And again, it's this, this move towards the pathetic, just as happened with uh, Edvard Munch in his Death of Mara, now in his uh, uh, The Great Friends, the two great friends we're seeing here. They're, they're, they're wounded figures in the wasteland. Some flags are left on the floor, and they have paint spatters on their, on their jackets. It's a sad picture they represent. Joseph Boyce, and Yanis Kounelis. It's untitled, Liberté ou Muerte, Liberty or Death. Long live Robespierre, long live Mara. That's what it says with the chalk. And then just this candle. Now next to this, we really wanted to show an icon from 1968. It was this work, 12 Horses by Kounelis. And in fact, we had the 12 horses coming up in a horse box, uh, well, several horse boxes, from a circus in Malmo. And Cornelis turned up, ready to get it ready, and uh, all of a sudden he said, no, we can't do this. It's impossible. So why? Um, excuse me. He said, you didn't tell me there's this big Louise Bourgeois in the same room. I said, I did. You had the plan, it was marked out exactly. He said, no, it's not possible. I want to make something with flesh. God. So luckily I was working with Pierluigi Tazzi, Italian curator at that time. I said, you deal with him. And uh, what came out was he said, uh, I would like to have a steel uh, armature the size of Picasso's Guernica. Guernica, of course, one of the strong images on this uh, icon of fascist aggression is the screaming horse. And so we have the metal armature the size of Guernica, and then he says, right, we need some dead horses. And that's what went on it. Dead horse meat hung up. These are from the collection of the museum, Larry Clark. I mean, more wounds. And Arbus. Fear and loathing in the Richard Billingham household. That's his mum and dad. Christian Boltanski, the archives, one of a number of archives. But generally speaking, they're non-Pacific, but they're collections of photographs of people's faces. And inevitably, there's a kind of Holocaust echo with those, but not, not exclusively. They're crimes that have, have been committed and not not atoned for, but also crimes which have still to be committed. Ilya Kabakov's the man who flew into space from his apartment. Another Holocaust reference with Rachel Whitereed. And then Victor Grippo, an artist from Argentina. And um, this analog made in 1970 to 77 you probably remember there was, a, there was a war with the Falklands uh, uh, soon after that time in the early 80s. It was a time when the generals were uh, in power. 
And they, happened, they spent their time dropping a lot of people out of helicopters. And also, those they didn't drop out of helicopters, they, uh, they tortured. And so this is a work essentially about torture. And uh, this analog of torture as potatoes are wired up into an amateur, am, am, amometer, which measures the electrical uh, discharge of starch as it degrades in the potatoes. Doris Salcedo from Colombia, who's also showing uh, uh, scenes of uh, disappearance of people. It looks, it's old furniture, but uh, filled full of concrete, yet embedded in that concrete are, are pieces of clothing, could be bone, other items. Vili Doherty, this is Northern Ireland again. Damien Hurst, death of, uh, of flies, but also a kind of more innocent side to the wounds, childhood itself, the fragility and frailty of childhood. And then lastly, a rather laconic performance piece uh, by Vanessa Beecroft. And it's a, a series of performance of these young women who are reenacting a photograph by Helmut Newton. So Newton being a sort of fashion photographer. And uh, it's, uh, it was a kind of her take, a kind of feminist take on Newton's fairly uh, rough photographs. So that is, a, that is a kind of example of, uh, of one approach and of looking at the, the ghosts of one place and looking at the idea of wounds. In uh, 2010 in Sydney, uh, I was responsible for doing the Biennale and decided that uh, we had other fish to fry, obviously. I mean, exhibitions, there's not an ideal platonic exhibition somewhere in the world and that you can parachute to any location and it'll make sense. If, if there's a historical show and you're gonna show, okay, the, the art of the Florentine Renaissance, okay, then yes, but not of contemporary art because it's made everywhere. And really what I wanted to do was to um, go back to the European Enlightenment again and to look not only at knowledge and uh, rights but also at colonization and the great discoveries, and certainly this country and others close by, are very much part of that process of discovery and what happened there. So, the ghosts were convicts and prisoners, of course, but also the first peoples. They're also the fourth worlds, so the people who have come from another country and made this their home, created the fourth world here. Gods and ghosts, and from the Panopticon to the Wunderkammer. Well, from the Panopticon to the Wunderkammer, uh, as, a, as a kind of reference, Panopticon was uh, invented by Jeremy, Jeremy Bentham uh, towards the, in the 1890s. And it was a great advance because it was a prison which was efficient because it enabled one person from a single viewing point to see everyone in the prison. Um, I mean, Australia is full of them. I think the, the, the School of Art in Sydney, actually, its gallery is the panopticon of a, of a former prison. There are others scattered around. But this idea that one person can see everything, you see it reflected also in the great encyclopedia of Diderot and D'Alembert, 
The idea that one group of people can collect all knowledge and it'll be there. I mean, if you think about it, it's ludicrous. You can't possibly gather all knowledge, all intuitions from a single point of view. It's completely impossible, even childish to think in those terms. And so we went from the Panopticon to the Wunderkammer, the cabinet of curiosities, the origin, if you like, the embryo from which museums developed. And these were randomly put together items which were intended to, to create a sense of wonder. And I really wanted to, to reintroduce this sense of wonder into contemporary art, not in an exoticizing sense, not to show things that are there and so different and all, to, to revel in the difference, but actually to revel into how incredible things are in themselves, even perhaps familiar things if they're framed up in a different way. So then a few other questions. How colonial is a former colony? What is the difference between modern and contemporary? Well, I've talked about that already. How much is good art a song of survival? Yes, singing. Songs of survival in a precarious age. The idea that art could be a song of survival. It is about life. It is about life force, even when under duress. And why is folk and indigenous art made now not regarded as contemporary art? Well, slowly it is being so. Thank God, still need to keep pushing. And what can good mean in contemporary art? Not a bad question. And I think everyone should ask, who's interested in contemporary art should ask themselves it every day. You'll get different answers. But at least ask it and feel satisfied with the answers you find. So, this gentleman had something to say about all of this. All music is folk music. I ain't never heard a horse sing, no horse sing a song. Well, if that's true, all art is folk art. And then, oops, we, sorry, I'm pressing the wrong thing. And then uh, this character, fascinating character, Henry Everett Smith, was the only deceased artist in the exhibition. But I thought it was worthwhile bringing him back because he was a musicologist. He collected indigenous music in Northwest uh, America, Southern Canada. He made drawings, Oops. you can see his drawings and films, animated films. And perhaps he's best known for this, his anthology of, uh, of music, of American folk music, uh, which he found these old shellac recordings and brought them together in this big box set in 1951-52. And it really changed the face of, uh, of uh, oops, changed the face of not only American music, but pop music worldwide. So singing was important, but also the colonial experience, how to express that in a, in a contemporary field. And uh, I found that Paul, Paul McCarthy, come on, Paul McCarthy had made this great, uh, great work, Ship of Fools, Ship Adrift. He just made it that year. What better to have that in Pier, Pier 1, 2 in Sydney as it sort of filled up about a third of the pier. The idea of the Ship of Fools uh, looking for something 
some awful gap in themselves which they would never, ever fill. Christopher Peace, an artist from Perth, uh, he returned also to the time of the Enlightenment. This engraving, he's taken an engraving here, and then put the target on there. And of course the target, one sees it uh, in Jasper John's paintings of the 1950s made in New York. But it's not that kind of target. This is the target of the indigenous peoples, the first peoples there. Foucault de Jong, uh, a very much contemporary work about capitalism. Yet he quotes Dutch uh, privateers from the 17th century as examples of the kind of attitudes within capitalism today. ASNF, uh, their work, The Feast of Trimalchio, uh, uh, really uh, the stories of Protonius from the last days of the Roman Empire being transposed into today. So these places, Cockatoo Island, I mean, I'm sure you know the stories about Cockatoo Island, but actually you go there and you begin to feel it. And I'm gonna go through very quickly now uh, this work by Sai Guo Chung which is about terrorism for him and about the strange necessity that terrorists feel and, and the kind of horrible beauty of their sacrifice. Or this by Kadaatia uh, about homelessness and poverty in so many people's houses. And here you are able to walk across, across the heads of the poor. Yet it also reminded you of... Uh, of 1970s minimal sculpture, which you were able to walk over and be involved in in the same way. Brooke Andrew, I'm sure you all know, is a Jumping Castle War Memorial, a subject he's still very much working on. Hiroshi Sugimoto. So these songs of survival Mark Wallinger singing away. Richard Gration's country and western version of Handel's Messiah. She's singing the words of President, then President Berlusconi of Italy, calling a German MEP uh, a Nazi. And a choir singing about perestroika. This late 18th century, early 20th century still keeps on coming up with contemporary artists. You don't need to put the old stuff in. It's all there in the present. Rachel Nepon, oh, she's in her mid-40s. Well, this Angela Ellsworth from Phoenix. Um, Sia Bonnet, she's referring to the, the Mormon history of... Uh, the colonization of parts of the USA, uh, but very much also about female oppression today. Fiona Partington, and I'm sure you know her work. These life casts of, of tribal, of, of, of chiefs, chieftains. And the title of the Ahua, a kind of breath. Brett Graham's. Mari tattoos on, uh, on armored cars. Kent Monkman, 
and Monkman is half Cree and lives in Canada. Uh, the point about the exhibition, of course, was that First People's work isn't only in Australia. Although the history of the Biennale up to that point would have implied that. I mean, the, because indigenous artists were shown very, very early on in the Biennale's history. But, but then it was like it was just an eccentricity of Australia. It's not at all. It's, it's over the whole world, all these creative people. And they're as contemporary as, as anyone else. And also their work is as patchy as anyone else. One needs to find the good stuff. Ah, I just love the expression. Newell Harry is making these uh, tribute mats woven pandanus. But these were an absolute high spot in the, in the uh, exhibition because there are 110 works by 41 artists, Yongul artists, and they're of these so-called lacrige, the, the funeral poles. But what it shows, they're made over a time, 11 years. You can see in these 41 artists' work how they've developed a language, an individual language, but also a group language about showing the world, about showing the world and the cosmos, which pays no debt whatsoever to Paris or London or New York. Or, but it's, it's beautiful and it's wholly coherent. And that there's a lot of this going on. And that it stands up and when you walk to the next room, and you find something else. And you find um, Louise Bourgeois has made these sculptures, bronze casts out of, a, out of discarded clothing that she's made. And then the kind of fetishization of ethnicity, um, which the Chapman brothers had some fun with, the, the Chapman brothers' family collection. As you can see, there's Ronald McDonald as some kind of primitive figurine. This is uh, Araya Rajamran Suk from Thailand, and she set up uh, full-size prints of uh, famous paintings in the, in the rice fields outside her house. And the, the local villagers came and discussed them. So this is uh, their, their comments on the works, their readings on the works, which are just as valid as any other reading. And they talk about the color of the people's skin, their weight, what they could be doing, all these things in a very astute and also funny way. Enrique Chagoya was a Chicano artist, so he's Mexican-Indian um, living in America. And Claudio Di Cochea, who's Mexican, uh, working with a kind of form, form of caster painting, which is Mexican 18th century, whereby they, uh, in Mexico, portraitists showed how the society was changing. So if you had a, a settler, a white settler, he married a, uh, a, um, an Indian woman, what you would have is a, is a uh, uh, such and such. And if, you, if he married a black slave, it would be a mulatto. And all these things, all these categories. No names given, just the process. So he's taking this, this idea uh, and imagines that Queen Elizabeth uh, would uh, marry uh, Chief Sitting Bull and their child would be Benito Juarez, who was uh, 
um, a president of Mexico in the 18th century, 19th century. Bong Yoon Sun Yoon, working on uh, Filipino laborers in Hong Kong and uh, the kind of condition of them. And they did, chose a hundred uh, laborers who, uh, who were happy to work with them and gave them a toy hand grenade and said, please put it in your favorite spot where you work and take a photograph of it. And uh, then we'll take a photograph of you from behind. And this is the presentation. So you can see in this one, I'm showing you, the dog gets it. But sometimes it's a baby's playpen, sometimes it's a library. But anyway, it is an interesting form, a subversive form of agency. Fiona Hall. Right. So, from, uh, from Sydney to Kiev two years later. And what a, what a jump. I mean, this uh, Kiev, a city which has uh, history, its history is deeply inset on the uh, Silk Road. Yet, ever since the Soviet Union was formed, it had become a kind of cul-de-sac cut off from East and West. <clears throat> so it's a matter of trying to think about how to... Uh, how to move things along and get the energy flowing along the, uh, the former Silk Roads. This is in Maiden Square, where all the trouble took place two, uh, two years ago. And this is uh, by Cho Jung-hwa, who's a Korean artist. It's a lotus blossom, 30 meters wide, and it sort of grows and then deflates slowly. The best of times, the worst of times, not my words, but Charles Dickens. Rebirth and apocalypse in contemporary art. It was actually the, um, the Ukrainians who want the rebirth and apocalypse bit. Um, I was happy to go with the best of times, the worst of times. Of course, this is long before the Russian occupation and, uh, and the, uh, the uh, change of government. This is the building, a late 18th century military building of about 30,000 square feet. Now he's working with about 6,000 square meters, sorry, square meters. I was working with about 6,000 square meters of this. 100 artists, 23 of them from the Ukraine. Now this is important um, because I think biennales, how they're different from other exhibitions is that they really do have to refer to where they are situated. And they're a fantastic opportunity for artists from the country, from the region, to be shown and to measure up against well, a very wide range, the best of the rest, the international field. It's, and I think it'd be very strange if, if, if one doesn't see a very strong representation and certainly in, in the Sydney Biennale, there was and many people from uh, Australia and New Zealand. And, and it turned out, I didn't know, I never make any um, guarantees, but it turned out that out of these 123 were from Ukraine. And of course, you have to work, you have to travel and go and see and not stay in just one city, but the work is there. 40 works were specially commissioned. 
So it's structured around the four ideas. I mean, then quiet dream in the name of order, flesh and the restless spirit. It kind of, this was useful to make people shut up when I was organizing it. They say what it's about, and you just tell them this. Um, there was also helpful that I didn't break the exhibition into categories, but I did um, group things around particular ideas. One of the things is quite decayed Soviet industry. It's a decayed 18th century building. And one of the things that Kiev had had, unlike Sydney, was that there'd been virtually no connection with the outside world, certainly the Western art world. So it was an opportunity to, to show three cells by Louise Bourgeois there, which they'd never seen before. And this flow of ideas from the West and also the idea of filling a space, which I think is incredibly important. The idea that the work and the space are in synergy. This is a very large work by uh, Shigeo Toya, uh, called, just called Woods, uh, which was one of the first things you saw after Louis Bourgeois. And they have a timeless quality. They're hand-carved and burnt. And it could be, a, could be a, a sculpture from the 12th century, almost, except they're replicated. There's a lot of them. And there's a, quite a senior, um, born in 1938, Ukrainian artist who was making this constructivist uh, sculpture out of wood. Ophila de Barlow. She made a huge structure. That's part of it, and that's another part of it. Referring again to decayed industry, industrial materials, and uh, a kind of feeling of something having wound down. And she was struck by her visit to, to Kiev that this, this is really what drove her to want to make that work. What drove Stelios Phytakis, a young Greek artist, was, uh, was the history of, of Kiev, the modern history of Kiev. And this is called Pincer of Germany, Revolution of Machno. Machno was an anarchist at the time of the Civil War in the 1920s, written out of Soviet history. And it together, the first letters make up pogrom, which of course was one of the main things that, important and significant things that have been happening in Ukraine and in Russia from the end of the 19th century and intensified particularly around the time of the Civil War. And in this, he's referring to Makhno there. And then in the second image on the left, to the Babi Yar massacre in the 1940s, which was of Jews. A series of films made by Lutz Becker, which referred to the uh, uh, Ukrainian avant-garde cinema. It's called The Scream echoing uh, Munch's work of the same time, but uh, really dealing with sampling pieces of Dovjenko's films and uh, saying things with them that Dovjenko himself, as a Ukrainian nationalist, could not have said at the time he made those films. He would certainly have been killed had he done so. 
Ai Weiwei's Circle of Animals, another young Ukrainian artist, The Hand, it's spray paint, he's a graffiti artist, yet he did this over an archway. But it has a kind of liturgical or, or religious significance as well. And as we were thinking about the 18th century, there's also the question of the invisible hand, Adam Smith's invisible hand, by which the market is able to rule everything. Alley of Superstars, uh, this is uh, all the politicians from Eastern Europe and Western Europe that you can grind your heel into. Fokker de Jong, you, can, you saw him in Sydney, similar work. Weapons, weapons made out of kitchen implements by Yin Shu Zhen. And then the kind of Russian thugs, the Gopniks, uh, the thugs who, uh, who beat people up, particularly gays and uh, others. And the, the, the neon text over the front says, long live the bad things of today, for tomorrow will be good. Miwa Yanagi, a Japanese artist, these uh, are four meters high. Uh, these strong figures of feminine power, like goddesses, angry goddesses. Yet when you look at their body, they're both very young and very, very old, collided into the same body. Almagun Limben Libayeva, five-channel video piece about the nuclear test grounds in the former Soviet Union, interviewing people that lived near there, what they remembered, and the kind of terrible uh, desolation around that area now, which is in contemporary Kazakhstan. Song Dong, based, from, based in Berlin, The Wisdom of the Poor. And uh, all these works are made out of uh, detritus from the destruction of old buildings in, uh, in Beijing at the moment, the old hutongs. And he's making a point that the poor, when under duress, they find that he was one of them living in something like this. They find ways of making do. In this uh, work, we're looking at the... Uh, a rooftop and where a pigeon loft is built on the top of it. And underneath that pigeon loft is a, is a place for someone to sleep, so you get accommodation for one more person. And then it continues on into a traditional Chinese landscape. You know, traditional Chinese paintings, they're mountains and they're water and there's clouds. Yet he does it with the, for the using for the water the old mirror, the old um, window frames from these buildings and then building these kind of fake mountains, which he tacks things to. And another take on traditional Chinese painting by a Japanese artist, Ash Color Mountains by Aide Makoto. Uh, a very large painting, but as you can see, these, these ash-colored mountains are not of mountains, they're mountains of dead salarymen and their equipment as they're sort of piled up one on top of the other. Or this by uh, Lam Tung Pang, a Hong Kong-based artist. And this is five meters wide. And it's, a, again, a, a traditional landscape, but with the, with the kind of stupid buildings that are put, too often put in the middle of it. And the Chapman brothers again. 
Now, during World War II, uh, Kiev was occupied by the Nazis, I think, for two years. And this is a work which re reinstates, uh, remakes these SS uniforms and reimagines the degenerate art exhibition of 1938 in Munich as being about modern art. Um, that what, what would happen if the Nazis liked modern art instead of hated it? And so he's created this scenario in which uh, they're, they're rather liking flat metal sculpture from the 1970s, which also looks like a dinosaur. Well, this light projection, a water by Jitish Kalat, this cover letter, and it's a letter by Gandhi, sent by Gandhi, the head of the Indian state in 1939, to Herr Hitler, and it's suggesting him that he should follow a peaceful path as by far the best way. Or a Ukrainian art, artist's view of the specter of revolution, quoting Marx's words from the Communist Manifesto, the spectre of revolution is haunting Europe, 1848. Here it is in 2012 in Kiev, and you can see these geriatrics with their pitchforks and their sticks, and followed by skeletons, are chasing ahead for US dollars. And you have some very nice Ukrainian embroidery down the side to show how, how national it is. So these big mixtures of different cultural traditions from the Far East, from folk art in the Ukraine, from the Chinese Cultural Revolution. And where did that came, come from? How did the Chinese and when did the Chinese learn to paint like that? Well, they were sent to Russian in 1955, a man called Konstantin Maximov, who uh, really taught them to to paint properly, stop doing these mountains and water. And this work made in 2011 is a kind of parody of that. Uh, it could be, a, there's a kind of timelessness with it, but, but what is going on there? I have no idea, it's just extremely strange. And the same kind of idea with this work by Zhou Shishi based on a painting from the 1940s in, in China. There's a contemporary Chinese reading of the new school, the School of Athens by... Uh, and then the, uh, the Statue of Liberty, but in Chinese bamboo scaffolding and wearing a Mao jacket. Not just a cheap joke, I mean, the American national debt actually is uh, very largely owned by the Chinese state, but uh, quite what that means, I'm not too sure either. And back to Rodney Graham and uh, Andrei Saigadasovsky, someone whose work I'd never seen before, but these are made on, on carpets, and they're just rather strange and very, very strong paintings. Made in Company, that's one of the Chinese artists. Divinity Marks, 
Kenji Anobe from Japan, who is obsessed by nuclear power. And he traveled to Chernobyl to see the site of what had happened in the, uh, in the power station. And a lot of his work is, uh, is populated by these figures in hazmat suits. And his father actually was a ventriloquist and worked with this dummy in a hazmat suit uh, to kind of tell parables about nuclear power. That's by a young Russian artist. It's called Untitled, Immolated Tibetan. An immolated Tibetan monk. And it was made using Molotov cocktails. So he had these bottles full of petrol and he made some stuff there. He set fire to them using the Molotov cocktails. Din Kulay from Vietnam. Sound and Fury. It's what he described as the kleptocracy of the contemporary Vietnamese government. Looking at the Ho Chi Minh mausoleum here, the party supporters following it. And then a young Ukrainian artist showing on plates his drawings of police procedures for getting information without leaving too great a marks. So, plates about torture. Sorry, this is a folk music. Uh, it's a group called REP. And uh, there, there's still a tradition in, in Ukraine where performers are like bards, and they sing these old ballads, which have many, many verses. So they went to uh, these famous bards in different cities, and they asked them to sing different avant-garde manifestos uh, uh, from art, history of art. Chiharu Shioto, also Japanese. I'm sure you recognize that one. Kusame Ayoi. It was an eternity room. And a special room she made. And then just to wrap up on this, Bill Viola. The raft. Whereupon figures waiting are suddenly just poleaxed by very strong jets of water. And then just the west, best of times, the worst of times, whoops, skip, what? So, Rodney Graham. So, lastly, just really to, 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 to uh, wrap up, um, I want to talk briefly about the Moscow, uh, Fourth Moscow Biennale of Young Artists, which is, again, another proposition. Uh, it's partly an open submission exhibition, uh, and dealing with what category of young artists? Well, it was, for them, it was 35 and younger. And so it seemed to me that the title should be and a time for dreams.
which was 84 individual artists and collectives of 120 works from 30 different countries, and chosen from over 3,000 submissions. And there are 23 participants from Russia, CIS countries. Um, And it had already started getting sticky in Russia at this time. Uh, I mean, they're becoming increasingly right-wing. Um, the church was complaining about blasphemy. Uh, they were very uh, worried. Some people were very worried about contemporary art. So I thought we'd better start by referencing Soviet art in some of the works we're showing. So this is a famous work from 19, uh, 1937. And here's a performance that was made by a young, young uh, Russian artist called Olga Kreuter, Point of Support, whereby she just stands on this, uh, on this column for a long time. It's a different kind of uh, assertion, maybe more passive, but maybe stronger by being more passive. This famous entrance to the Wiedernhader exhibition of economic achievement which is built by Stalin in the, in the mid-30s. And then this Dennis Rudolph, Rudolph, the portal, a gateway to heaven or hell that he constructed outside the museum in Moscow that the work was shown in. And these are figures from people who'd been gone missing, children who'd gone missing um, in Los Angeles around the time that he'd been making this work. Fountain of Friendship in the same exhibition. And then this rather sad version by Ivan Plush, The Triumph of Fun. As you can see, these are oil barrels and they're spouting water. That's his artist's uh, view of it. It wasn't so great when he actually made it, um, but it didn't spout as much as he hoped it would. But anyway, that was the kind of idea. His idea of fountains, portals, gateways, Tribunes. This is Elisitsky, famous Lenin Tribune from 1920. And then this work by Zip Group, a young group of people from Krasnodar. Uh, it's an observation tower. You see, there's a very strong link, but Tribune, no, it's an observation tower. Why do people need, need that kind of thing? But they're part of an overall system, which is they're looking at, and you can climb to the top of it and look out. And also related to it is this Klutzis from 1922, a screen and kiosk. Well, that's their version of it, but it's a booth for independent picketing. So what Zip Group are doing, constructing a zone of civil disobedience. And here's the booth for picketing. You can see it's uh, in action here. Uh, feet underneath and wheels and you roll it forward and you bring out the different slogans that you want to, uh, you want to say. And uh, you, you can't get hit on the head while you're in it. So it protects you from police and mounted police and other police. And it, it is a joke, but also that, but they have used it actively in the in demonstrations. And there's some drawings of the, of the different things they have. And that's their model, this district of civil uh, resistance. 
with these different elements, the booths you can see there, and uh, there's a, the control tower is, is somewhere up there. This is still from a film by Andrei Tarkovsky, uh, from The Sacrifice, this idea of the flaming house, the old house. It's a very romantic Russian idea. And this work, uh, that's the old house that these two artists, Filatov and Chernyshev, found uh, to reconstruct, to bring it back to life in the gallery. Like that. At a time when the wooden houses, uh, they come from Nizhny Novgorod in the north, when the houses were all being demolished. And there's a kind of protest against this mindless demolishing of history. Vesha Harris from Barbados, they say you can dream a thing more than once. I mean, the topic of the, uh, of the exhibition was, was, uh, was broadcast. And it's her kind of tropical, Disney-fied version of, uh, of dreaming that's somewhat bizarre. Would you imagine there'd be such a good animator in Barbados? Well, this work by Oleg Ustinov, it's called Administration, and he's created the corner in a communal block of flats uh, where people obviously live, and the administration puts up these signs. They're always putting up these signs. And they put up a sign which he's written. He says, Dear residents, according to data from observations carried out in your housing estate, persons of non-traditional sexual orientation, gays, lesb gays lesbians, have been identified in your part of the building. We ask you to be particularly vigilant in your dealings with persons suspected of propagating homosexuality. Please note that persons of non-traditional sexual orientation may propagate homosexuality not just directly by describing the advantages of homosexual life or even suggesting to you or members of your family to have sexual relations with them and not just by wearing extravagant clothes or behaving unconventionally but also indirectly, gradually, carrying out their propaganda work in the building for many years. Anyway, it goes on and on and on. If you suspect anyone of propagating homosexuality, immediately inform the district representatives of the organs of eternal affairs or call these numbers. Anyway, the numbers was the deputy town, town mayor. And uh, all of a sudden, he starts getting called up by people. Some of them say, I have to report flat number three on line four. Um, others are saying, what on earth are you doing? This is completely unconstitutional. You're asking people to look on each other. It's like going back to the Soviet time. So there's a huge row, and the press get involved with it. So what happens on the outside walls of this is it's plastered with newspapers about what is going on. Who is the administration? If it's not the administration, who is doing this and why? And everyone has an opinion. And then on that wall, there's the TV. The TV then get onto it. So the whole thing becomes a media event, a huge media event. And I, I found it incredibly consoling that, um, that there is so much critical thinking and critical action by uh, young and, and some much older Russian artists and intellectuals and just regular people 
uh, all the time. It's not this monolithic swamp ruled by Putin that we're told it is. I mean, Putin is a complete disaster. He's a horrible man. We wish he wasn't there. But there are so many people, and quite a few of them are quite good artists. But it wasn't just Russian artists. I mean, from Thailand, from Kazakhstan. Uh, this is a Thai view of, uh, of Kiev and the Ukraine. And Luyan, a wonderful film she made, animated film called Gigantic Uterus Man. So Uterus Man is one of the great unsung superheroes. There you see he's, he's uh, flying through with his ovum light wave. And he has a magic vagina, which can be used as a weapon. And also the baby weapon, which is you kind of swing it round like that. Chen Zhou uh, from Beijing, also uh, a short film called Spanking the Maid, which is a title of a, of a novella written by an American writer. And this guy working out in the, in the weirdest gym you can see. There's some sort of political, oh God. PowerPoint restarted, sorry. Hold on. Good, thank you. Hold on. Good. Uh, and so while he's grunting and working out in, 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 the, in the gym with a very large banana in it, and uh, these uh, strange Texts keep on coming up on the, on the wall. Liran, also from China, uh, a film that he made in which he acts in it, from truck driver to the commissar of the mounted troops, which is based on the films, the Soviet films he saw as a child uh, growing up, I guess, in the, in the 70s or late 60s, still shown on Chinese TV. So he makes a kind of parody of this. Sun Shun, uh, also from uh, Beijing, some actions which haven't been defined yet in the revolution. It is made uh, as, a, as an animation, but it's all wood, woodcut, so it's not drawn. So each frame, when it's changed, it has to be carved out. Oops, sorry, excuse me. Very strong imagery. Heba Amin, uh, who's a Cairo-based artist, and uh, she made a piece about the, the, the Cairo Arab Spring, particularly in Cairo, using the, uh, the when, when the trouble started, the government shut down all um, internet and mobile phone services. Yet the only way people could communicate with each other was through um, Twitter. And uh, so people were leaving messages on, on Twitter, and she collected a whole lot of these. 
And the imagery that you get through the three channels is of kind of the, the shadow of Cairo, a kind of desolate and deserted place with these incredibly hopeful and optimistic messages uh, left at the time of the, uh, of the Arab Spring when things were looked for a moment as if they were opening up. An artist from Colombia, Eric Pons, an Iranian-American artist. That's Dream a Little Dream in Farsi. Gaisha Madanova, who's a Kazakh artist. Syndrome of Learned Helplessness. The idea that um, uh, psychologists, uh, particularly Russian psychologists, develop the idea that uh, when conditions are so oppressive, you learn to be helpless. And that when the conditions that were oppressing you are removed, you don't change. You stay as helpless as you were beforehand. So she's really taking this, uh, this idea and uh, expanding it with these photographs taken from um, some kind of 1970s Soviet sports manual. A lot of gender-based work. This is from Estonia. These are about street demonstrations. Um, Ivan Shabrovsky, and they're a choreography that took form in, uh, in uh, video. And uh, they're called Anti-Demo. And slowly a, a tableau is built up with these actors until you reach the moment that click, the newspaper photograph was taken. And it's either some kind of riot or demonstration, and it's usually one in which people are either workers or uh, LGBT people are being beaten up. A recycle group, they're Russian. Uh, the Keys of Paradise, people uh, paying uh, obeisance in the supermarket, so worshipping the gods of, uh, of commodity. Tony Schmala. Her sculptures, Queening Machine, and Fuhr Park, Driving Park. Oh, instruments of delectation and torture. This is about nine, well, nine meters wide. It's a lace curtain which someone else, and in the lace it's uh, embroidered you. Tenzing Rigdal, young Tibetan artist. Daniel Boyd, I'm sure you know his work. And then lastly, Isaac Chongwai, uh, who's a Chinese artist living in Germany. And this is called I Dated a Guy in Buchenwald. So the letter says, I had lost faith in mankind one day I decided to go to Buchenwald with the sky, and once inside the camp, he kissed me and helped me find the oak tree. Then I knew there was hope, for I'd just experienced human warmth, where I least expected it. A time for dreams. Thank you. Um, so we have some time for questions. Um, if anyone wants to ask David, just raise your hand and I'll come over. 
Well, um, yeah. Okay, great. Kathy. Sorry if this isn't very well formulated. Um, hi. Hi there. I was, when you spoke at the beginning about uh, sort of this, this strange word of curator and sort of feeling like an exhibition maker, but a lot of your... Uh, a lot of your work has been as a director. Can you talk about kind of your experience being a director versus being an exhibition maker or <coughs> being a curator, Just, if that makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, um, the reason I directed the museum in Oxford for 20 years was that it enabled me to decide what exhibitions took place and if I'd been only an exhibition maker, I wouldn't have had that power. And uh, it was really important for me to have that. And that's the trouble being freelance. You have these incredibly good ideas which are ahead of their time and trying to get some grumpy old fart to agree to it who are actually more considering the, the kind of financial implications of getting more people through ticket sales, in other words. Um, I never bothered about ticket sales. Uh, so it was it was another time, of course, but but not really. I don't think. I, th I think if uh, how I used to um, balance uh, things in in Oxford was uh, um, tour the exhibitions we did, so they went to other places. So either you did it on a straight sharing costs and 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 worked on it together, or alternatively we did it and then. Um, you know, we sold on catalogs and they took a, uh, we charged a higher fee or something like that. And, and so probably about 45% of my income towards the end was from that source. And without it, we could never have, we could never have dreamt it would have been possible because there wasn't enough cash to do so. Unless you get sponsorship. And sponsorship doesn't come untied. Of course, we did sometimes. Sometimes it's lucky and people are keen and but uh, not, for, not necessarily for things that people don't know much about, but which, if they see it, they might really like. So it's getting on to a discussion of what museums should do. And uh, you know, I think they should be independent and disinterested specialists working in art, not trying to sell it, and using their expertise to share with people. And the best people do do that. Any other questions? Okay. Um, just want to thank you so much, David, for um, sharing with us this evening and the Biennale of Sydney for bringing you along to, with, um, to share this with us. Yeah. Thank no, you so all. much. Thank you. Thanks.